Welcome to Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian company, Euros Hartleys. This is a podcast series where we take time out to get to know the story behind the people who front some of Western Australia's leading companies. We look back at some of the moments in their life and career that shaped the journey to being the leader they are today and provide you with some real insights into the way they think and approach things, both in business and in life. So get the volume adjusted in your car or your headphones sorted and settle in for a great story. Here is your Finding the Front host, Tim Banfield. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode nine of Finding the Front. This episode, we have a wonderful opportunity to chat with all-round good guy, Mr. Chris Reed who is the Managing Director and CEO of Innovative Minerals and Advanced Materials Project Development Company, Neo Metals, stock code NMT. Chris started in the mining industry in 1990 and co-founded Reed Resources with his father David in 2001. In this absorbing conversation, we gain an understanding of Chris's life growing up in the capital of the Western Australian goldfields, Kalgoorlie and how his career path and passion led to building a company in the mining sector that ultimately led to the formation of Neometals. Neometals has transitioned from a mineral resource only exposure to becoming an integrated mineral and materials project developer. It has three core projects with large partners that support the global transition to clean energy and span the battery value chain, including lithium iron battery recycling, vanadium recovery, and the Barambi Titanium and Vanadium Project, which is one of the world's highest grade hard rock titanium vanadium deposits. So please sit back and enjoy this very interesting story on Chris and hear his insights into the commodities that are very relevant to the 21st century. Without further ado, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce to Finding the Front, Mr. Chris Reed. Ready? Thanks for joining us on Finding the Front. It's indeed my pleasure. Glad to be here. Time is of the essence at the moment with your role with Neo Metals and the growth plans that you have in place. It's very exciting. The, one of the things with Finding the Front is we look at you as a person and learn a bit about your, about your background. And it's just such a fascinating story, the Reed family. And I wanted to just start, before we got onto your corporate career, just start a little bit back and think about the Kalgoorlie days, and it's so steeped in history. You know, with regards to the Reed name, I had a real interesting insight into the fact that your grandfather, Ron Reed, was a stockbroker with Stoddarts yep. back in the day. And it sort of resonated with me that it's just such a dynasty that happened and how that impacted you growing up, and, and consequently your, your father went into the same industry. Yeah, sure. He uh, started working, I think he bought the firm in about 1935. You know, prior to the uh, nickel boom, you know, it was pretty hard for what was RW and DJ Reed. So dad and Pop were both members of the stock exchange. I think dad was the youngest guy to have a seat on any stock exchange in Australia. You couldn't make a massive living out of it. So we had other businesses. So we used to cut the ICI explosives. So that was a business that we were agents for ICI and dad, his family company's called Trucking Nominees because we used to have a fleet of trucks that used to deliver all the ICI explosives. So, you know, Dynamite, Gel Ignite, Amfo, all of that sort of stuff. Yes. And sold that in 1986 when we moved to Perth. And Stoddart's also had a travel agency. So 
the buildings that we had in Palace Chambers next to the Palace Hotel. Yes. Um, you know, one side was stockbroking and then in the next office you could go and book yourself a ticket. <laughs> you know, on a, on a plane or uh, on a boat or, or anything. So you, they had a lot of business interests to try to make it. And it wasn't until the nickel bone that, you know, the stock market became really sexy and took off. You've got to remember gold was, was pegged up until the early 70s. So yes. there just wasn't that much sizzle in gold. And nickel, you know, really bought it. And then gold went off the gold scale and it grew. So your dad came out of school from Kalgoorlie and went straight in to join your grandfather? Yeah, so he, he didn't go to university. He stayed home. It was a nickel boom. They were very, very busy. Yeah, so, you know, they did pretty well out of, um, you know, the nickel boom and, and pegging ground and, and small companies. So if I had anything, it took anything. I mean, love growing up in Kagali, right? So all the guys, you know, dad and his mates, they all had, you know, very civic-minded, did a lot of charity work, you know, rotary a lot of sport, the race club, you know, whatever. And then, of course, you, you know, you, you're surrounded by businessmen and entrepreneurs and hardworking guys that had their own businesses in trades and mechanics and miners and engineers and drillers, you know. It was a great environment to foster young great, entrepreneurs. Yes. And so you're, you were part of a family of five. There's David and your mum, Judy. Yeah, and, and uh, brother, brother Tim. Yeah, and sister Jennifer. Great. Did you go to yeah. Kalgoorlie Primary? So I went to St Michael's and St Mary's, then out to CBC. Right. Then we merged with the girls' school, and I moved up to Aquinas in 1986. Okay. Yeah. Year nine. Look, I was just looking at. I mean, growing up in that stockbroking environment with the people you were surrounded, the businesses, and that total environment was clearly had an impact on you in terms of your career. What did you take out of it in terms of, you know, entrepreneurialism? Having a go was clearly a, a major factor. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know, I can remember getting some shares for, for one of my birthdays and then dad coming down to school one day and pulling me out of class and saying, mate, what are you doing? The bank manager rang him up and said, mate, I got this guy coming in for a, for a loan. He's put down 457 Hannon Street at your house. <laughs> Dad said, who is it? And he said, Chris Reed, you know him? And he said, mate, he won't be coming in for any loan. <laughs> and he came down to school and said, mate, what are you doing? And I said, well, I was going to get some, borrow some money off the bank. I'm doing all right on the stocks. I thought I'd amp it up. And he said, mate, you know, it's pretty good for a year four kid, but how about you just stay at school? <laughs> so I started from a, a young age and look, you know, it, it was a great environment. You know, we could work there on holidays. I worked on the floor of the actual Perth Stock Exchange in 1987. Wow. In a holidays running for Glennie Colgan, who was the operator. Right. He now, you know, runs Argonaut. And yeah, it was, you know, there were some great people that, that worked at Ezraid. And, you know, we still bump into them. Dad's obviously still friends with just about all of them. Well, so your dad just was quite a character in terms of Kalgoorlie and quite iconic in the stockbroking world. Went from being Reed through to Ezraid Macintosh and eventually became Macquarie Bank. Down the track. Yeah, well, actually, it went to CIBC. CIBC, yeah. yeah. And yep. then after September 11, they shut down quite a lot of the non-essential, so they, they really wound down their Australian operations. And Dad sold the book to, to Macquarie. Yes. So you, uh, as you mentioned, you then left Kalgoorlie at that point and head down to Perth. You went to Aquinas. Yep. Aquinas College. How long, how long did you go to Aquinas for? So four years. Four years, yeah. yeah did nine, you enjoy it? Nine through to 12. 
Yeah, it was great. It was a bit different to, to start off with. I was going to say, different to going to Kalgoorlie. Yeah. yeah. Well, look, you know, they're both Christian Brothers schools, but, you know, I can remember them, the headmaster saying, you know, how are you fitting in? And I said, well, mate, you know, a lot of these guys, they act up. I, I just can't work out why you don't hit them. <laughs> and he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, no one's getting the strap here. He said, mate, the strap was outlawed in 1983. <laughs> I said, well, mate, that fax never got through to Kalgoorlie. You know, I mean, we used to clean out, you know, every day we had inspections, so you if you didn't have shiny shoes, two cuts of the strap. Yeah. Shirt wasn't presented, two cuts of the strap. Every homework, every subject for homework you didn't do, two cuts of the strap, mate. We used to ride our bikes home, do our homework, and then played. Yes, yes. You got it done. Yeah. So I think that actually was very formative for a couple of years in an all-boys school young and probably set the scene for the way you're approaching. Yeah. Yes, yes. When you left school, did you know what you wanted to do? I know you, we talked about it a bit earlier, but you, know, you started pretty early in an entrepreneurial way, but you went to Bond? Yeah, look, Bond University. I, 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 had a, I had a reasonably long academic career. So yeah, look, I mean, straight after finishing school, I worked up at New Celebration down in the bottom of the pit, finally managed to get myself out onto the surface. You know, I studied at UWA for a couple of years, then worked as a diamond driller for Wally Unger. Right. Then went back to Bond for a couple of years and studied finance. Then came back to Perth, worked in as an accountant, then worked at the University Building Society and got to be CFO and company secretary, and then went back to school to finish off and actually get a, an accounting major because whilst I did like doing accounting, I never actually finished my accounting major. Right. So I did that in 2001. And we decided, you know, when CIBC shut down after September 11. Yes. And Dad said, well, you know, you've and, – and I had my own mining project that I'd picked up. Right. And, and Dad had the old San Queen mine north of Cal. And he said, you know, I've got to do something. Your mum doesn't want me hanging around the house, so we'll set up a company and have a crack at it. Yeah, yeah, how exciting. And so was that really where Reed Resources started? Absolutely. Yeah, and that's where the association back with your dad continued. Yeah, it's great. I've got to say – Spending 20 years working with your dad is great. A bit like a farmer working with his son. Very lucky. Very yeah, lucky. very lucky. Because he's got so much experience and, and you've clearly got your own experience and it sort of works well together. I mean, you've brought other people in and around you, but the story of Reed Resources, just give us a little bit of uh, insight into that. Yeah, sure. So we raised, we raised the money predominantly for the Comet Vale mine. Right. And so we drilled that out. We got up to about half a million tonnes at about 12 grams. Yes. And managed to bring in one of his old buddies, Bill Phillips, to develop it in a joint venture where Bill did the mining for 50% of the gold and we took, took it through to getting it milled and paid for the transport and, and costs and we split the gold 50-50. That worked well. It was just small. Yes. You know, we, we took out 80,000 tonnes at 12 grams and the – Jork resource was about 11.8. And people would say, you know, how could you mine without a reserve? And I said, well, we did all the diamond drilling and we diluted it and we published a diluted resource and we mined it with air leggers properly. Yes. It just, we could never make it into a big mechanised mine that didn't really have, you know, that, that market appeal. And then Dad, at, but when we were setting the company up, I was working with the guys PMA to buy Barambi out of the PMA Windermurray. Right, yes, yes. So we finally got that 2003. So we ran gold and 
the Barambi project at the same time. We were doing exploration up at Mount Finity, did a joint venture with Portman. There was deposits of low-grade, you know, well, low-grade iron ore. And Minres has that ground now. Yes. It, it adjoins them. They're old Polaris stuff. And then we bought Mount Marion, and I think that was probably a game-changer for me. You know, I was up in Germany my birthday in 2008 looking at some of the Brambi concentrates getting processed in Germany at a lab and bumped into two guys coming out of a meeting as I was going in and they yeah. said, oh, you're the young kid that's got this, you know, titanium vanadium project, that's great. Son, you need to go and find me some lithium. So I walked in and just thought, mate, who are those guys? And they said, well, <laughs> did they talk to you? And I said, well, yeah. And they said, well, you better listen because that was the head of R&D for Daimler and uh, Johnson Controls. And I said, well, what would you need lithium for? And he said, mate, the future's electric, right? Lithium batteries. This was 2008. I was going to say, so we're at 2008 at this yeah. point. And so on the, on the flight, I had to fly back to Zurich to see the Glencore guys because they, they were going to off-take Brambi. And um, I thought, well, i better find out what this lithium is. Oh, it's in brines, in salt lakes, in, you know, in South America. That's not enthusing. Uh, or spodumene, and I thought, oh, spodumene, right, green bushes. And then I thought, when I was working at New Celebration, we had the Mount Marion or exploring what was then to become the Mount Marion gold mine. Yes. And I used to have to drive over this hard white stuff that was hard as the Hobbs of Hell. And I remember asking a geologist, what is all this white stuff? And he said, mate, it's spodumene. And, and it, then it just dawned. The light bulb went on. And so when I got back, had a chat to Dad, and I mean he's he's supported a lot of, you know, not just in life but in the company, you know, a lot of the ideas. Yes. And so we bought the prospector in, did a deal. He wanted six million. I got him on an option, three million, two year option to buy him out for three million with a royalty. I should have kept it. It was one of the things I didn't do well. And then we got. We were doing work on it because Western Mining had had it for 35 years but let it lapse. And he picked it up. Because originally they were going to put the spodumene in the Arroyo Mill in Kalgoorlie in the 60s. Right. This was all to supply the Americans. Yes. But the Canadian government intervened and they subsidised the mine in Canada instead of going with Australia. So the Lithium Corporation of America, Broken Hill South and Western Mining were going to develop Mount Mary in the early 60s. Then after the nickel boom faded, they looked at putting it in the Cambelda concentrator. Yep. Then they had a look at producing lithium sulfate when they put the acid recovery on the smelter. But anyway, they couldn't get it to work. But unbelievable work had been done. Two feasibility studies, one in Adelaide, one at the School of Mines. It was brilliant. So we were able to get Chris Ellison to, to come into Mount Marion. Originally, we wanted him as contractors. They had a look at it and said, we can do the whole lot. And... Yeah, and that was 2009. We almost developed it in 2010. It was a price war. We ended up getting it done in 2015, which was great. It's, it's interesting, Reedy, on that point. I've heard you mention commodities for the 21st century. Yeah. Right? That almost started in 2008, really, when you look at the way that Reed Resources came about. I, I went back and had a look at an annual report of Reed Resources back in 2009, and we're just after the GFC. Yeah. In your stable, you had vanadium, gold, nickel, iron ore, base metals, lithium. And it states, this is probably the most exciting project we have 
after entering an option purchase agreement with a local prospector over the high-grade Mount Marion lithium deposits near Cambalda. I mean, fantastic. It goes on, and your dad wrote this as chairman. He gives a paragraph on vanadium and gives a paragraph on lithium. Lithium is the mineral of the moment, being a major component in storage batteries for electric cars, and this should ensure solid demand and increased prices as electric cars replace conventional fossil fuel-powered vehicles. This was in 2009, annual report for Reed. So talk about the light bulb goes on. It's well on at this point. Yeah. And you can see what's unfolding. You mentioned Chris, Chris Ellison. Yeah. He can see it too. Yes. I mean, he he does have vision. I mean, look, you know, what I didn't mention is in the intervening period, obviously, to grow, we bought Mekathara and developed that. Yes. Unfortunately, you know, that didn't work out for us. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you yeah, know, that well, was... Well, look, it wasn't a pleasant time for anyone. No. You know, and maybe not on dollar value, but certainly on impact, I probably lost the most out of it. Yes. So. But you've ridden the highs and the lows in a way. In a, I mean, you've learned a lot from that. Yeah, well, I mean, look, they went from, you know, I think we peaked at a twenty. Beforehand, we got down to 1.8 cents. Right. And then last month we hit a dollar eighty-five, so that's a hundred times rebound. But I tell you what, going from a buck twenty down to one point eight, when you'd leverage stock and stuff like that, was just character building. Yeah, well, you look to at, say the you, least. You look over the abyss. There's there's not much of a. You've just got to bash on. Yeah. So. And I think that stood as well, in terms of. The transition, so we're selling out of Mount Marion and going into the battery recycling, right? And for a number of years, you're out there and it's pretty lonely. Now, it's caught up well now. Yes. And everyone thinks, oh, that's brilliant. I can tell you in 2016, 17, 18, people just, why would you sell out of the world's second biggest mine? And you're just like, well, mate, it's a finite resource. I'm a very, very small partner. I've got two big gorillas. Whatever they want happens. Yes. You know, we put in three million. We got 200 back. Then we were able to sell our offtake back for another 30. And that's enabled us to give money back to the shareholders that have backed us. I mean, yeah. I have a look at my top 50 shareholders or top 100 shareholders from the float, right? Most of those guys are still there. Wow. So, you know, it's a so, great endorsement. Some, you know, funds and stuff have been in and out, but guys have just steadily built up. It's enabled us to return back 80, more than 80 million bucks to shareholders while still funding our businesses, you know, which is good. So we're proud about that. And then obviously, you know, we, we demerged and gave back Widgie Nickel and that managed to double in the first three months. You know, I mean, that's just got such a great future we knew it yes so you know we bought that well patiently early invested 10 million in it so i think that total cost was about 13 and it must have a market cap now of 80 90 million bucks you know it's it's been a good roi but in the context of near metals business it needs to operate separately to yes. give those people like we're massive believers in nickel if you have a look at that lithium battery recycling and you're putting in nmc 811 batteries it'll be the predominant feed at the end of the decade it's a nickel refinery the biggest single product by value is nickel right because it's eight part 
eight parts nickel to one part cobalt to one part manganese, right? And from a cost perspective, you're, you're at the lowest point on the cost curve. Right. Right. So I can't not invest. So anyway, we put together a good team and, and they're making a good fist of it, which we're very happy oh, with. Oh, absolutely. I just want to go back, just the formation of Neo Metals. So that's what we rebranded it yeah. after the Mika Thera failure. Yeah. So gold involuntarily left the portfolio mix. And so during that time, I was just, my sole focus in the gold years, in those later gold years when I wasn't the MD, was to look after the non-gold assets. And fortunately, the market for lithium turned around in 2014. We got the deals done in 2015. Yes to get it into production. But yeah, the focus, you know, NEO, so you're focused on the new metals. And, it, and it's just started, well, it, it, I mean, when I say started, it's just continued to grow really from that, that formative area though, when you had the lithium vanadium yep. deposits. And then the way it's then moved into, you know, the four business models or four, four business units. Yeah. And, I'm just interested into how you decided to do that and the sure. way that's just unfolded. And th- I mean, there's so much. I'll jump forward a little bit and say, okay, I read recently a, a great article in the London Times, the Times in London, should I say. And I thought it was just classic, Ready, An urban miner that recycles metals for reuse in electric vehicle batteries is preparing to list in London. This was on the 15th of February this year. Neo Metals, which is already listed in Australia with a valuation of about £400 million, is seeking a dual listing on AIM, London's junior stock market. Chris Reid, its chief executive, described Neo Metals as new age urban miner, adding, we're like the Wombles, making good use of the things that we find. Just think of me as Orinoco. I just had to giggle. Yeah, look, I've got to say, it was an interview and... I was trying to get my point across and she said, look, you know, you're not a miner. I normally talk to miners, blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, just think about it as an urban miner. And then I thought, well, underground, overground, wombling free, the wombles of Wimbledon, common, are we? Yes. Making good use of the things that we find, everyday things that folks leave behind. Brilliant. And, and the only one Brilliant. that, that – and look, if I'd had a bit of time, I could have said Uncle Bulgaria or Tobamore. <laughs> <laughs> the only one, the only one that pinged into my mind at that stage on the spot was Orinoco. Yes, yes. Right, and it takes a lot. You know, they say he's lazy and greedy, and to appear that way actually takes a lot of effort. I can give you. <laughs> oh, I could tell it was off the cuff, but it made me laugh. Yeah, yeah. But, but he does have some of the traits there that I, I do demonstrate. So that's that's not dramas. It's unfortunately he's not hardworking. He went on to say though that you know you've got projects around Europe. And these include recycle lithium-ion batteries in plants, plants to recycle lithium-ion batteries in Germany. And you go through your presentation and I can see it, you know, yeah. how it's unfolding. So you've come from your roots. You've gone through the Reed Resources experience. Yep. You've got the experience of, of David in, on your corner. And now you really are taking this to a whole new level. I'd really, really just like to hear how you've been inspired to do it this way. And, and then also, Reedy, the electrical vehicle market and just your insights into it. One of the pages in your presentation really uh, comes back to the cost, how to address the emerging carbon shock of EVs as well. 
And I think that's really interesting. So sure, yeah, you can answer those. So look, the first part. So I did a postgraduate in mineral economics at the uh, School of Mines. So I did the graduate certificate, then did the masters. I'm up on the the wall of shame, i.e., guys that haven't done it for a while and have only got one unit left. <laughs> I'll get around there someday. I think I stopped when my first child came. So it's quite a few years ago. Now, you know, understanding the economics of mining, right? I mean, they are finite resources. So whatever resource we've had, we've, it's finite. And so then having had that experience, in, you know, encouraged to get bigger and stuff like that and resources, and I had a look at it and I thought, well... Fundamentally, we had the industrial minerals assets at the same time as gold as a counter because they generally used to move counter-cyclically, gold and nickel, that sort of stuff. And they're not manipulated and they're used for value in use, right, because you couldn't exchange trade them. So for me, fundamentally longer term, you're going to have – it's a better mineral market and so then we would innovate to try to drive our costs down – to make more money. That's how we made more money. Whereas, you know, I looked, you know, tried to game it out, right? Because we tried to do a lot of deep thinking. I encourage everyone in the company just to, you know, sit down, pause, think. Everyone's got a book and it says, you know, the most important thing I've got to do today, five things that are important, five calls to make, you know, that sort of stuff. And I encourage everyone to do that and to make lists and sit down and think. So. What were the options available? You know, it was it's hard for companies to grow, for the juniors to grow. I get it through discovery or whatever, and you get one into production, then how do you grow? Yes. You know, because you have a look at the odds. Out of 100 projects, you know, 10 might make it into serious evaluation and a couple might make it into production. So all of the guys that are well-skilled miners have just been buying more assets to parlay. But then you run out of projects. So how do you grow your business? So we identified the trend that we wanted to be in, right, which was the EV and energy storage thematic. We could have easily gone into agriculture on the same basis that the world population's going up and arable land's going down. Yes. We, We chose the EV ESS. That then drops out the commodities that are the battery minerals. So once we got the lithium into production, we thought, what's the next best market from a mineral market analysis? It was cobalt. We tried to buy, we had an Israel with Macquarie. I tried to get them to buy the London Stock Exchange cobalt stockpile, not for physical delivery. I said, well, write me out of the money call options. Wouldn't do that. Then my COO held up his Apple phone and said, did you know that the batteries in this ready are 20% by weight cobalt? I'm like, shit. And in the cars, the nickel cobalt manganese. And I was like, right, well, we're onto something. No one was doing it. Yep. And so five years of R&D later, and we've got, you know, a plant that we're having the opening of in uh, Germany next month that we're going over for. We've got a partnership with one of the best plant builders in the world that'll build more plants and bigger plants. So what we've done is we've developed – so – as, and we've got some geologists and mining engineers and metallurgists. That's great. But, and we've probably got more skills in the processing than we have the mining. Right. Right. 
And so we've applied those skills to handling a new feed. Instead of a mineral source, it's the battery. Yes. But the, the sort of concept that we've had a look at is we need these materials. Those commodities need to be produced in a way that has low carbon footprint because everyone's getting carbon sensitive. And yes. We knew this years ago. Yes. And so high purity, low carbon footprint, and operate in environments where, you know, you need the best – practice like Australia has some of the toughest environmental regulations in the world so we've got a good background in that yes Europe's probably a little tougher and to design those processes to put next to your house right so with the battery recycling we have no airborne emissions any water that goes out RO quality and rather than using the conventional flow sheet with and where you would use sodium or a low value product as your pH adjuster we're right. using more expensive ammonia but our tailings product is a high-quality AMSOL fertiliser. So it's straight, it's straight use. Exactly. So very, very little wastage. Then we have a look at the vanadium recovery project. So, you know, there's very, very high-grade vanadium stockpiles. We got presented with the opportunity. And I thought, this would be unreal. We're just going to hit this with acid. We'll pull 95-plus percent into solution. This will be the world's lowest cost production. That's great. And we got those test results in the lab. But then when we had a look, they said, well, you'll never get it permitted because you can't have an acid mine generating tailings product up in Scandinavia. You know, it's all birch trees, white horses, you know. And I was just like, oh, crikeys. So we had to develop a process. So we used a, an alkaline leach, a sodium carbonate leach, where we actually capture CO2 and sparge it in as a gas. And that's our biggest reagent. And our tailings products are carbonate. And we can permanently sequester the carbon that we capture by putting it into building materials. Another another straight use. Right, so you're producing, yep. and yep. the vanadium's now originally 85% for steel, but now being used for the vanadium storage batteries, the, the Redox flow batteries, and now you're getting lithium vanadium batteries because it's the highest energy density. And so, you know, Volkswagen's running around a nickel vanadium manganese to replace cobalt. And we know what happens in these mineral markets when they find things for the batteries. They just, they explode. Yes. Then you have a look at our Eli process, which is a technology, so with Mount Marion, we nearly developed it, then there was a price war. So we sat down and Chris and I, and we, we all, were, we had to stop developing the mine. Right, we, start, we dropped down the power, we cleared the mine site, cleared the waste dumps. We started putting plant on site and there was a price war. So we had to stop. We thought, well, shit, how, you know, we might have to develop this as an integrated operation. We need to have a, a, an advantage. So we went back to the drawing board and thought, well, what's the best way to make lithium hydroxide for these cars rather than carbonate? Electrolyzer chloride. Who does that? Coogee Chemicals does it down here. Yep. They electrolyze their own salt from Lake Deborah and produce caustic that goes to Alcoa, chlorine that goes to Ty West. 100-year-old technology, I thought, well, it's a sodium chloride, would a lithium chloride work? So we went and rang up one of the original elders, Dr. Talak Bomaraju, up in Grand Island, New York. Yeah. Just rang up. He's written a five-part book on electrometallurgy and chloroalkali. He said, yeah, it should work. It won't be as – it'll use more power. And I said, well, that's easy because lithium's worth so much more than caustic soda. We can suck up whatever power we need. And so we've taken that project and, and Chris was – you know, they were funding a lot of it with us and, and they believed in it and 
yeah, so now we're at the stage where it can revolutionise the cost curve for lithium, particularly the brine producers that have lithium chloride in water. Yes. And you don't have to make it out of the spot, Jermaine. So, yeah, we've taken that through. We did a definitive feasibility study on spot, Jermaine, but it'll work way better with the brines. And we've done a deal with Portugal's biggest chemical company, a, a chloralkali producer, and we'll just repurpose some of their cells to zap lithium chloride instead of sodium chloride. So that technology, you can use renewable energy and you get away with the reagents, you use electricity, and you can do it at site, if, ultimately, if you want to. So it strips the carbon. So more lithium, because what we're faced with, these car makers, there's not enough lithium for the batteries going forward. There yes. is now, yep. but honestly, I mean, that's why the prices are so high. Yes. You can't substitute lithium in the battery because it carries the charge. Yeah. It's on the negative side, the positive side, and in the electrolyte between. Right? Everything else you can muck around with, but you can't muck around with lithium. So those processes, yeah. so those technologies enable us to spawn projects because we can it, yeah. use them as a business development tool. Yeah. So partnering with the Germans is partnering with someone that will build the plant because we can't do everything. We're just no. stuck down in Australia. COVID's proved it, that we can't develop them here. So we've done a deal with Stelco to put one in North America. Yeah. We've done an MOU to put it in a Tocho. We're using it as principal. Yeah. And so I can spawn lots of projects with that technology because otherwise you're down to buying mines it's scalable. and consolidation. So it's scalable, replicatable, and we're just in the infancy of recycling. The vanadium stuff, they've got these high vanadium pellets get produced up in Scandinavia. So there's these slags in different parts of the world. So that technology will work. So we've done a deal to take SSAB, who's a big steel maker up there, We've done a deal to take out of a new plant that's going up, right, called H2 Green Steel, and its shareholders are SMS, a partner yeah. in recycling, Mercedes, and Volvo, right? It's going to happen. So that's going to be for a second larger plant, and we're evaluating third-party stockpiles elsewhere in the world. So we'll build a number. Eli, the electrolysis, I can have a look at existing brine producers, developers, hard rocks. We could develop it so us and Min could go and get a brine resource or we could partner with someone that's got one or we can just license it out and pick up money. The only residual hard rock asset we've got is that titanium project. You know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's a bit of an albatross around my neck. We've invested $37 million, but it's the world's yes. second highest grade hard rock deposit. Titanium prices have been steadily increasing for six years. Yes. We're, we're past peak titanium feedstocks. China's got to convert all of its sulfate pigment to chloride in, in this five-year period. We've got Chinese partners and we've got a pilot plant up at Menzies, funnily enough, which was the old Menzies state battery for gold. Currently, we've set up a, a gravity concentrator there to make titanium concentrates that we're going to truck to the coast and then ship up to China. We're going to send up 150 tonnes. Gosh, Menzies back. Oh, mate. Oh, at least I don't get lost. I mean, that's one of the one of the beautiful things about all our old mines was they were on the main roads or railways. You couldn't get lost. Yeah, <laughs> it's all the technology and the operations you were just talking about. The operational element. I was reading the statement you issued for to the London Stock Exchange, and one of the points that I I highlighted was that 
the 14 patent families of a total of 68 patents, which are both pending and granted, and across multiple jurisdictions, etc. I know with, for example, a biotech company, patents are huge. Patents are the formation of their intellectual capital. This is an enormous number of patents, I would have thought, for what you're doing. And, and this is part of this, this technology and operational part which enables you to scale? Yeah, look, I mean, that's just defending your competitive advantage. Yes. So, you know, you go through, and fortunately for Eli, because we started in 2012, you know, we have 12 granted patents in all the lithium producing areas and 18 other ones for different families. Uh, and then we have quite a, you know, we... R&D has just been strong for us for 15 years, right? In, yeah. you know, a certain percentage of our expenditure. It's a real DNA. Yeah, well, it's just, if you're in markets where there's exchange traded, and a lot of these stuff, lithium, nickel, cobalt, you know, they're all exchange traded. Vanadium now is probably exchange traded for all intents and purposes. You're a price taker, notwithstanding that we're doing the battery recycling. In the end, with the product, you're a price taker. So the only thing you can do is innovate. You know, some of the problems, and you've, you've seen, like case in point, when the iron ore price exploded, you had all these guys just ramping up capacity, going nuts, and then it dropped. But have a look at their margin growth and how they pulled down their operating costs. Yeah. I mean, all those guys, Fortescue, BHP, Rio, as soon as the price turned around, they're back thinking, innovating, driving down, you know, going through different phases. Whereas for us, we're like, you want to understand that before you get in. Yeah. And for us, it's, it's about keeping up. So new types of batteries, you know, moving from a, a liquid electrolyte to a solid state lithium electrolyte in these batteries, looking at what's going to be coming up and over the corner, what sort of threats. And people go, oh, hydrogen. I'm like, dude, every hydrogen car has a lithium battery in it. A hydrogen car creates the hydrogen creates the electricity it doesn't go straight to the wheels it's got to get stored in a lithium battery otherwise these cars can be really slow and only go at one speed correct right yeah the hydrogen generator the hydrogen the generator part of it only spins at one speed just on that we talk about electrical vehicles what are your when you talk about your customers yeah this sounds broad ranging so we're talking about here you mentioned mercedes-benz volvo I'd imagine. Well, that was their partners in the H2 correct. steel. But, you know, for the battery recycling, yeah. where we get the feedstock, so we've got, we're studying different scale plants. The one that we're studying at a feasibility study level now is designed, a 50 tonne a day, is designed to take the off-spec production out of a typical gigafactory. Right. The 500 tonne a day plant that's at pre-feasibility level is to take the end of life. Now, statistically, about 10% of what goes into those battery making plants, the gigafactories, comes out as scrap at steady state. First couple of years, it's much higher. And then you've got to scale your business up to take the 90% that, that went out in cars that come back in nine that's to it. 10 years' time. Right. So we're starting, and our business models for the battery so that's, recycling that's very are interesting. disposal, yeah. joint venture, licensing. So we're tendering now. So our demonstration plant runs on batteries from car makers, where we have to demonstrate that our, we have a really good solve for them. Then we've got the 10 tonne a day plant that we're going over for the opening, and that's just going to basically handle their disposal obligations for a fee. Right. We keep the, the black mass end products. Then 
what we're going to do is we can we've done the like a, the Stelco joint venture on the fifty ton a day plant, but they've got ambitions because they're going to recycle whole cars to get more steel scrap for their steel business because they need to move from blast furnaces to greener steel electric arc furnaces that need scrap steel, not pellets or iron ore. So you move then, we'll do joint ventures. We, we would make the most money doing it ourselves. Right. Highest risk, highest return. In a joint venture, we'll consider making less money and we've prepared all of our businesses for margin erosion, but volume growth. That's common across all of them. Yes. Right? You, you just plan to make less and you've got to have strategies then to get more market penetration. So joint venture, where we can see end of life. So the end of life volumes are our key focus. In the interim, we'll process smaller volumes. But this is down the track. We're talking, yep. as you say... Hey, no. the end of life volumes start, the, they start growing exponentially from about 25, 26. Is that right? right. Yep. That's when the, that's that's when the EVs from 27, 28, 2018 are knackered. <laughs> so really, and the, with the growth in EVs... Oh, it's, it's crazy. Just, yeah. And, you know, the market is growing into the millions of tonnes of capacity. So if, just for example, like we're in Europe and we've got ambitions. We're at 10 tonnes. We want to go to 50 tonnes, which is, you know, 18,000 tonnes a year. In 2025, Europe, at the moment, the total addressable market's 335,000 tonnes. The total installed capacity in Europe at the moment is less than 70,000 tonnes. So it's got to grow by a fair bit in three years. Sure it does. And you can't replicate the pyrometallurgists. They won't permit new smelters. Like Umicor has Herbocken in Belgium. You can't build another one of those. Probably not inside Belgium and definitely not outside Belgium. You know, and Glencore. And so these big pyrometallurgical things, just who is going to build the volume that takes the industry from 70 to 335? And Hence why we partnered with SMS or a plant builder. Yes. We want them to build multiple plants and bigger plants all over the world. There's 14,000 employees in 95 sites around the world. And we've demonstrated that we're going to North America. Then we're going to go to other jurisdictions that you'll see. I mean, we've got an unbelievable pipeline of prospects. It's very exciting. And you're going to be on a plane, I would imagine, a little bit. Yeah, so we'll be going to London for a week to catch up with everything and obviously we're listing there, so a bit of follow-up before we're heading to Germany for uh, the Benchmark Lithium Conference. Then we're going up to Finland where we're going to build the vanadium plant and meeting all the locals there. Then we're going to fly over to Stockholm and see SSAB, who we've got the contract to buy for 10 years, their steel slags. Then back to Germany for the opening on the 28th of March of, of the battery plant. And then, uh, then for me, down to Zurich to see the gnomes before <laughs> coming home. Just coming back to home, go back a little step. You've got your lovely wife, Sonia, who's been with you through this whole journey. When did you guys get together? Was it just around university? Uh, no, so I, I met Sonia on the 8th of August, 2000. And once again, God probably gave me a big slap because, you know, <laughs> some boys, some boys you've got to find out the hard way. And so, yeah, look, we met at the front bar at the OBH, as good country kids. She's a farmer's daughter from Narragin. And we were actually having a farewell for a guy and I saw this girl at the bar and I thought, well, look, you're obviously waiting for someone. 
because I can see really well dressed, overdressed for the Obi. And how about I buy a drink and when whoever's coming, I'll peel off. So, yeah, how you going from Narragin? And I said, oh, well, my auntie and uncle from Narragin, Joan and Bill Tingley, the butchers. Oh. And she just looked at me and said, you're joking, right? And I was like, <laughs> no, nah, it's my mum's twin sister and her husband, Bill's the butcher. And she looked at me and goes, my mum and dad are down this weekend with Joan and Bill at Joan's sister's farm just outside of Mandra, which is my parents' place. And at that moment, the sky collapsed. <laughs> and I said, boom. And that's a sliding door. And, uh, and I've just gone, and I was like, wow. Yeah. Okay. Right. And then a bump. And, and, uh, <laughs> and then a friend came along. A couple of girls came along and I sort of said, look, do you mind if I, I'll be able to get your number. Do you mind if I give you a call? And that's where it all started. And now you've got three beautiful boys. Yes, yes, all, uh, all going to your alma mater, which is somewhat disturbing for an Aquinas boy. <laughs> and really, it's interesting watching now you've got these three beautiful boys watching them grow up and where you're positioned in with your company and yep. what you're doing. You must find it quite rewarding when you're having this, you're having a real impact on the world in terms of the decarbonisation, in terms of your, your footprint. You know, it, is, it must be quite a good feeling from that regard I'd say. Yeah. and for aspiring career driven people who want to get into that area you can offer them a real opportunity yeah look I mean we uh, we would probably have the lowest staff turnover out of any company that I know yeah. you know we had maybe in the last five years we've had one leave who retired and one who wanted to change professions and, and moved into one of the big companies but you know we gladly take her back when she wants to come back. Yeah, I mean, we treat it, you ask any of the old Esri guys, it was a good place to work. Yes, yeah. Yeah, It's it's much more, it's pretty family friendly. Everyone gets along pretty well. Yeah, I think, you know, rather than the more traditional mining guys who are wrestling wealth out of the ground, we are creating new things. We're seeing a need then that gives rise to an opportunity and then we try to find a, a solution. So we're not, you know, it's, it's perhaps more your traditional marketing. You, you've got to fill a, a long-term need and look at your business mm. the other way around. Gold's different. Gold's just money, right? So you're mining money out of the ground and there's a natural place where you... But for this, it's a completely different skill set because, you know, I'm not a qualified you know, minor engineer or metallurgist. You're really I know enough to be dangerous. Yeah. But it's – and lucky to have had such a fantastically supportive board too. So we've always – whether it's in life or whatever, I've always had people around that are really, really good people and I've learned so much from them. It's been a – fantastic insight into your world you must be looking forward in a way to get out on a plane and, and going and being a part of all this having you know having yeah, been look, through the, the recent lockdown look just you know when you've got your businesses right or the, the projects that have come out of those technologies that you're commercializing your first commercial business activities are in europe 
and they've got the largest green pools of equity and debt and just love, you know, they, they're, they're battery material poor in Europe. Right, but they're very, very wealthy and stuff like that. And yes. I think, geez, you know, we've had, and believe me, I'm very grateful for how the share price, and we've had some tailwinds yes. as we've gone through and as the projects are maturing. They're blowing along really, really well. I think, geez, I wonder how, you know, what we, what we would be if we could have done what we normally do where we're away every quarter for a week or two weeks. You know, we never used to have to worry about quarantine, but, you know, being front and centre in those, you know, I mean, you can do Zoom calls and stuff like that. You can maintain a relationship. I think creating those relationships is tough. Yes. So we, we were able to do it with SMS because I personally knew the, the business development manager. Right. Right. And so he was able to come out where we couldn't go up there. He could come down here. And so it took longer and was more expensive to get there. But you got there. Yeah, we got there. And I just think, geez, but what it's done, I guess, the, the last couple of years is enable, enable us to really focus and to get everything right. So, you know, our headcount's probably up 50-plus percent in the last two years. So where are you now? What's your headcount? Oh, we're probably about 35. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, all the systems, procedures and processes, and, and the test of that has been the AIM listing process. The admission documents, 250 pages. We had a 1,000 verification points. They go through everything. Like if the ASX applied the level of scrutiny that the London Stock Exchange does, there'd be 75% less companies on the board. Right. Fairly, fairly intense. Well, it's one, it's expensive, much more expensive, and the compliance is... But we come through that with a clean sheet. You so know. you're you're listing on the 28th? Yep. Yeah. Well, look, look, good luck with that. That's Jeez. really exciting. Really, really exciting. Yeah, no, we're looking, we're looking forward to it. I mean, I think, you know, I, I have a look out at the prospects for the state. I just, I don't think I've ever seen them as rosy across so many commodities. Yes. You know, oil and gas, iron ore. I mean, it's just so high, even if it halves, they're still going to make money like bandits. You know, nickel, that's going to, and, and that's going to have a massive, second half of the decade. It's just going to be great to see the nickel mines fly again because we haven't had enough of them developed. Yes. But they will. Chris is bringing back on Wajina, and now we're actually seeing those downstream lithium in, in WA. You know, and, we, and we've put some money into an aspiring cathode producer and cell manufacturer down in Quinana. You know, it's... So many opportunities. Uh, it's brilliant. And, they, and these... And the kids are going to have so many more opportunities, right? Because you're moving from more mining to the downstream yeah. processing. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're just longer term. You know, we're blessed. We've just, we've got multiple world-class lithium mines. So those processing things, they'll be a bit like the equivalent of what Alcoa did to Pinjara. Yeah. You know, or, or Quinana. You know, those big transformational projects or the nickel smelter and the nickel refinery or Western Mining and yes. all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I think we'll look back and be proud that this transformational. is probably... Yeah, just transformational in the state. Reedy, are you reading any good books? What are you, what are you into? Honestly, I... Don't have time. I've got a lot of books there to catch up on. 
<laughs> but just haven't haven't yeah. had a time. I must have five books that have been given to me in the last year, and literally haven't had time to scratch myself. No, you know, but and, that's cool. And the boys are all playing sport. We talked about it earlier. They they've had a, a bit of a rundown at the Swanee Tigers. Yes. So the eldest is a rower. So you know, I've got uh, five. You know, just quarter past five drop offs, four days a week, right. which is all right. Let's go. Downstairs to the gym and crank, you know, try to keep myself fit. And so two of them are doing rowing. And this year, I think they'll they'll won't play club footy. Just stick to club rugby because we just found last year with school rugby, club rugby, and club footy, they're training every day. Yeah, we're playing every day, and that. Like you got to keep these uh, like with boys, they're just like little dogs. You got to keep them busy, or they'll rip your house apart. <laughs> but equally, you don't have to drive them into the ground either. Oh, so. brilliant, brilliant! <laughs> Look, it's been a fantastic chat, and thanks a lot for your insights. Yeah, I'm mean, very it, welcome. Too many times, really, really has been enjoyable, and um, and it's just really exciting what's going on in your world, and um, and with neo medals, and look, it just. I can't wait to watch the progress. Yeah. And, um, and as well, I, I think say, that's what we offer the shareholders. Like we have it in the, the back end. It was security and opportunity. I mean, you've got a good board. It's got a proven track record. Lots of cash investments. No debt. A consistent strategy across all of them. And look at the opportunities. Like in terms of value catalysts of the portfolio over the next two years, I mean, you, you, I don't think there's, in my mind, there wouldn't be anyone of an equivalent market cap with the growth prospects there. Like I'm talking multiple arrows. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. Thanks a lot for your time, mate. I really no appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding the Front, brought to you by the proudly West Australian wealth management and diversified financial services company, Euros Hartleys. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and subscribe to the podcast through your podcast host of choice. If you have any questions or would like to contact us, please email our fabulous producer, Bridget, on communications at euroshartleys.com or visit our website at www.euroshartleys.com. This podcast has been general information only. Euros Hartleys holds Australian Financial Services Licence 230052.